0: Hello, in this week's show, why the UN's top rights forum is more relevant than ever, after resolutions on the climate and Covid vaccine equity. That's what outgoing President Najat Shamin Khan from Fiji tells us. And an appeal to fight like hell for vaccine equity from the World Health Organization's Dr Maria van Kakove. This and the week's other top stories, with closing comments too, from regular guest Solange Behatege Cortez. Thanks for listening. First, the news with Mehika Asharia.
1: This is a news in brief from the United Nations. The aid situation in the occupied Palestinian territories is an existential threat. The head of the UN's Relief Agency for Refugees there warned on Thursday. Philippe Lazzarini, Commissioner-General of the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, or UNRWA, said that drastic funding shortfalls threatened further essential services to millions and could lead to its collapse. Some 5.6 million Palestinians have registered with UNRWA as refugees in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, Lebanon, Syria and Jordan. Mr. Lazzarini highlighted how chronic underfunding, along with political attacks on the agency's mandate, threatened to sever the lifeline of education, health care and social welfare as provided by UNRWA. No country can boost its way out of COVID pandemic. That's the message from the UN Health Agency. At a press conference on Wednesday evening, World Health Organization chief Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus warned that national booster programs will likely prolong the pandemic rather than end it. The agency's technical lead for COVID-19, Dr. Maria Van Kerkhove, said that it was still too early to conclude whether the Omicron variant is less severe than Delta, but that people who were vaccinated had a much lower risk of developing severe disease and death.
2: Regardless of what information we do find out about Omicron and the different vaccines that are in use, it is better to be vaccinated than not. So if you hear anything from us today, please hear that and get vaccinated when it's your turn and fight like hell for vaccine equity for everybody else around the world.
1: Eight million people in Yemen may have to be given reduced aid rations because of funding shortfalls, the UN World Food Programme WFP said on Wednesday. The development comes as families already hit hard by years of war continue to struggle to support themselves, with currency devaluation and hyperinflation driving the economy to near collapse. WFP said that food prices have more than doubled across much of Yemen this year, while fighting across multiple front lines continues to force families to flee. Mihika Acharya, UN News.
0: The headlines there, thanks to Mahika, And now to this week's interview, which is with Nashat Shamim Khan of Fiji. She's the outgoing president of the Human Rights Council, which meets for three scheduled sessions throughout the year, plus any number of special sessions, if member states are concerned about a specific situation anywhere in the world. This year, there have been five special sessions on Myanmar, the occupied Palestinian territories, Afghanistan, Sudan and Ethiopia all of which has made for a very busy 12 months for the council's president, whose job is to help countries implement their human rights obligations, as she tells us now.
3: Of course, one of the most important roles of the council is to address immediate and important human rights violations around the world. And I think the council, despite the COVID-19 pandemic, has responded very quickly, very effectively and in a very inclusive manner to those human rights violations. But in addition to that role of the Council, we have to remember that the Council is really helping states on journeys to implement human rights obligations in their countries through mechanisms like the special procedures as well as the universal periodic review. But overall, the Council also has an advocacy role, an advocacy role on human rights issues specifically, but then globally. How does human rights, how do human rights fit with the peace and security pillars of the United Nations? What is its role with the Security Council? What is its role in the General Assembly? These are important issues, both uh, ideologically in relation to the work of the Council, but also very practically. I think that despite the pandemic and all of the difficulties which have faced us in this very difficult time in history, I think the Council's done very well indeed.
0: You mentioned the special sessions, and by the end of this year, we will have had five, which is a record in the, what, 15 plus years since the Human Rights Council was established. You also mentioned the pandemic and the COVID crisis. Critics of the United Nations, we often hear it, they say, well, it's just a talking shop. But go on, tell me about the technical support, perhaps, that the Council offers by way of its resolutions to everyone in the world.
3: I think the relevance of the COVID-19 pandemic can be divided in three ways. The first is the importance of the Council in the discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic on the implementation of human rights everywhere. So what is the relationship between particular rights and what happened to us as, as a global community in the midst of COVID? So we started that conversation in 2020. As soon as we knew that we were facing a pandemic, the Council responded very quickly. And adopted a resolution asking the High Commissioner to update the Council on the impact of COVID 19 on human rights everywhere. And I think that very quick response indicates that the council was aware of the importance of the relationship between COVID and human rights. But secondly, I think very importantly, there were some substantive issues from the COVID-19 pandemic. And one was the access to vaccines. This is a conversation that is happening everywhere in the world, whether within countries, we have an equal access to vaccines by all communities, especially those which are most vulnerable. And secondly, are we having an equitable transfer of uh, vaccines amongst countries. So I think that conversation was really amplified this year. There was a resolution which was adopted by Consensus, which was led by Ecuador, which really discussed access to vaccines and really discussed the need to have equity both within countries and amongst them. But the third aspect of the COVID-19 discussion is how COVID-19 has exacerbated the failure of some, some of us, in fact all of us, to enable equality within our countries. I, I don't think there is any country in the world which has a perfect human rights record. And when we confronted COVID-19, we realised that all the inequities and inequalities within our societies were exacerbated. They were laid bare in this you know, very, very harsh light of what was happening to us with COVID-19. So this third area of the discussion is how we are going to recover. And it can't be business as usual. We do not go back to a world before COVID-19. COVID-19 has really demonstrated to us that it cannot be business as usual. And also ensure that the inequalities that we have discovered will not be repeated if we are ever to face such an emergency again in the future.
0: Another thing that's really dominated the last couple of years, and certainly this year, has been the COP26, the climate change discussions. And I know the council has been very involved in that. And perhaps uh, because you come from Fiji, a small island state, The impact of climate change is very close to home. You know, how important was the resolution on climate change in the sense that you've appointed a special rapporteur on climate change for the very first time?
3: I think uh, that one of the difficulties uh, with the discussions at the council in the past has been that there hasn't been enough acceptance, that there is a relationship between human rights and climate change. So uh, when Fiji first opened its mission here in 2014, there were very few states which recommended to other states in the UPR process, the Universal Periodic Review, that there ought to be a better connectivity between the human rights journey of a country and its work on climate action, for instance. And when There is a new legislative framework, for instance, on climate change, that it really must be based on an acceptance that it is a human rights conversation as much as it is a scientific conversation about reducing carbon emissions. Because fundamentally, you will not change uh, the world um, on this climate change journey unless you involve people. People will make this change. But of course, it's not an easy conversation there are many people in the world who believe that the only conversation you can have on climate change is in Bonn with the UNFCCC, and that is none of the business of the Human Rights Council to speak about uh, issues which are relevant to the environment. But increasingly, I think many more countries have recognized that climate change is a relevant discussion in every UN agency, in every institution. It's the business of everyone. And so we have seen proportionately with the increasing numbers of small states in the Council, we have seen an increased focus. And I think that started a trajectory. First, we saw more recommendations in the UPR process on climate change and human rights. Then we saw special procedures and treaty bodies making comments and recommendations and making reports about climate change and their particular right. And I think all that work over many, many years culminated in the resolution this year, in the last session, but of course there were two. One which recognised the right to a healthy, safe and sustainable environment, and the second was the creation of a mandate for climate change and human rights. And both are incredibly significant for the world. Of course, they're very important to small island states, particularly in the Pacific, but they are significant for the whole world. And the fact that there was such an overwhelming level of support for both resolutions, I think really indicate an increasing consensus that this is an important conversation in the context of human rights.
0: And my last question to you, of course, we couldn't end this interview without talking about your next step, which is at the International Criminal Court, where you're going to be taking up your position as a deputy prosecutor. It's just been announced, in fact. So fascinating to hop from one hotpot to another one, if you like. I mean, do you know which dossiers you're going to be covering?
3: Well, you know, I started off my career as a prosecutor. I prosecuted for 16 years. Then I moved on to the high court bench in Fiji as a criminal judge, largely. So my work really uh, over my life has been in relation to the administration of criminal justice. And it was this move into diplomacy that was really a very big step for me, uh, quite an unusual step. But I'm so glad uh, that I did that because I think that it's my work here in Geneva, not just in the Human Rights Council, but with all the international institutions, which really introduced me to the concept of multilateralism, the importance of diplomacy, the importance of having conversations cross-regionally. And of course, we have to remember the International Criminal Court is not just a court, it's also an international institution. And it's also a multilateral body. As to what areas of work I'll be covering, that is, of course, entirely the discretion of the chief prosecutor. And I don't know that yet. I'm assuming that in the next few months, uh, it'll become clearer.
0: My thanks to Ambassador Najat Shamim Khan after a very, very busy year at the Human Rights Council in Geneva. For the full interview, check out the UN News Audio Hub now. Right, let's hear from Solange Behtege Cortez, who's been listening to the interview for her closing thoughts on the Council's work and on what Ambassador Khan just said. Hi, Solange.
2: Hola, Daniel. As Ambassador Khan said, there is a relationship between human rights and climate change. Climate change affects all dimensions of life, it is undermining the right to food, life, health, water, shelter, migration. And, Daniel, it has also an impact on poetry. I'm going to tell you why. Remember first that Article 27 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights explains how we all have the right to participate in cultural life, which includes cultural heritage and expression. One form of poetry that is particularly exposed by climate change is haiku. Focusing, by definition, on nature and the passing of the seasons, haiku is originally from Japan. It has three lines and follows certain rules. It must, for example, contain a kigo, word representing a season. But today, with climate change, certain seasonal words no longer find their place in the seasons that concern them. Many of the blossoms, insects, birds, and fish that haiku poets have sung about are endangered, if not extinct. In 2013, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, released a 2,000-page report. Gregory Johnson, an oceanographer from Pacific Northwest in the USA, translated the entire IPCC report into 19 illustrated haiku. The result is a beautiful and powerful use of his art form, which is being transformed by climate change to communicate about the impact of our changing planet on our daily lives. As Ambassador Khan said, climate change is the business of everyone, And we have to ensure that the way governments respond to it do not result in human rights violations. It is, as she said, a human rights conversation as much as it is a scientific conversation. And I would say it is also a cultural conversation. The future deserves poetry.
0: Thank you, Solange. Brilliant to give a nod to Japan's deceptively simple haiku verse, Where will you take us next week, I wonder? Right, time's up. Thank you, listeners. Next week, we'll be featuring an interview from the UN Refugee Agency's Special Representative for the Climate, Andrew Harper. We just couldn't fit him in this week, in case you were wondering, so very sorry about that. Don't forget, for more news and interviews, just check out UN News. And a very happy Christmas and festive season for all those celebrating. Bye-bye for now.